in Flanders Fields by Charles Ives. Welcome everyone to tonight's Twitter space. It is the end of day 25 of the war in Ukraine, and I'm Dmitry Alperovich, Chairman of Solidarity Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C. And tonight I'm joined once again by Michael Kaufman, an expert on the Russian military and research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. We also have with us tonight, for the first time, Andrew Monihan, author of The New Politics of Russia, Interpreting Change, and a senior fellow at the Canon Institute, Royal United Services Institute, and NATO Defense College. So today, in addition to the military campaign analysis with Mike, we'll do a deep dive on the Russian politics with Andrew to hopefully figure out what is happening in the Kremlin right now as their invasion of Ukraine drags on. So welcome, Andrew, and great to have you back, Mike. Mike, let's start with you. So today, Secretary of Defense Austin said that Russia's campaign is, quote, stalled, unquote. First, do you agree with that characterization? And maybe talk about what is happening right now on the various fronts of this campaign, the, the fight for Mariupol, the push towards Odessa, Russia's attempt to surround the Ukrainian forces in Donbass, and of course, the push towards Kiev. And also, what is going on with the Ukraine counteroffensive? Are they actually taking back territory? Thanks, Mitri. I guess my upfront disappointing answer to that is going to be uh, yes and no. So if we look around what we can perfectly describe as three distinct fronts, in the north around Kiev, it's clear that Russian forces are very much struggling to complete any kind of encirclement. I don't think they're in a position to conduct an assault on Kiev. I'm growing skeptical about the upcoming Battle of Kiev, as some people have called it. Um, maybe that's something that might happen in, in a follow-on phase of this war, but I'm just not seeing it right now. And they're mostly looking to consolidate territory on the eastern side of, of the riverbank, maybe trying to still encircle and get around the city of Chernihiv. If we look in the southwest, the Russian attempt to get around the city of Mykolaiv to try to chart a path to Odessa, that always had a low probability of success. There was a real paucity of forces available for it. It seems the Ukrainian counteroffensive has really cut into their supply lines there and pushed them back towards Kherson. Now that front is largely stalled, and, and if anything, they're probably trying to fix Ukrainian positions there, but I don't expect any progress there at all. So that leaves us with really one area to focus on, which is in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass, the Ukrainian Joint Forces operation there, there's quite a few units. Russian forces have been trying to pincer them via two, two attacks, one coming down south of Kharkiv to a city called Izum, Another one coming up north from Militopol, right? So we have that situation. That is where Ukrainian forces, if, if they're precarious in any place, that's definitely the part of the map that looks very challenging for them. And then, of course, we have the, the battle to take Mariupol as well along the coast of the Sea of Azov. There, you know, if Russian forces do end up taking it, it's been very bloody. If, if any part of this of this war so far looks like an, anal an uh, analogy to uh, the girls near or the Cheshire War, it's definitely that one. Uh, I would say that that's the that's the one city likely to to potentially fall, but but to me that's in of itself that's not that significant. The more significant part, if there's any movement on the front, it's the attempt to encircle a large part of Ukrainian force in the east. So in general, I would say that yes, it's true that most Russian uh, acts of advance have stalled. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I predicted the Russian forces would be around this time, uh, reaching exhaustion and a high degree of combat and effectiveness. And without a big operational pause to replenish, resupply, reorganize, they would have major issues making progress. It's kind of looking like that's, that's the way things are going. That, of course, doesn't mean the war in any way is over. It just means that maybe this initial phase or chapter of, of the war is over. As for Ukrainian counterattacks, they've had some success a little bit outside of Kiev on the eastern side. And the main counter counteroffensive around um, Nikolaev, you know, and that's led to led to somewhat a shifting battlefield. I guess that, that's all I'll say there. I'm ha I'm happy to add more. I just don't want to drone on because it's such a big topic. Yeah, uh, you know, one thing that puzzles me, maybe you can shed some light on this, is it seems like they're really really serious about taking Mariupol in a way that they haven't been with Kiev, Kharkiv, Chernihiv, all these other cities that they've. Um, tried to sort of go into initially, but then pulled out and now just bombarding with artillery. Why are they so fixated in Mariupol? Is it because of this uh, bridge to Crimea? They just really want to have that city, including uh, at the cost of leveling into the ground. Uh, tonight, they issued uh, an ultimatum to all citizens of the city to leave by 
5 a.m. local, which is actually 11 o'clock Eastern time tonight. And if they don't, they'll all be treated uh, as enemies, uh, which seems to me like a war crime. Why are they so intent on taking this one city and not the others? All right. So I think there's a military reason and there's a political reason. The political reason, I think, is straightforward. They want to take all the Donbass. I've been watching them revise down what I think their war aims are. And if they're searching for anything that they can claim a victory to get out of this conflict, one of the pieces they would need is to have captured most of the Donbass. And then possibly Russians will then say, well, that's this war was really about that and these concessions that they're going to try to extract uh, out of the Ukrainian leadership. So seizing Mariupol as part of the Donbass, I think, is important as a political goal. On the military side of the equation, while logistically it's not at all critical, I think they want to tie up the whole coast uh, along the Sea of Azov. I don't think it's really so much about a land bridge to Crimea. You know, I've never liked any of the land bridge theories. They never made much sense to me. But if they do take Mariupol, they can then free up a lot of forces to help the push from the south towards that encirclement of Ukrainian force in the JFO. Um, regarding the, the other parts that they've taken in the south, like your son, it's still not clear what their aims are. You know, is there, are they going to try to create a Kherson People's Republic or is that just going to be a chip that Russian leadership will seek to trade away, use as leverage in order to attain a political settlement over other concessions they'd like to extract from from Zelensky? I, I suspect it's more that and rather than them wanting to partition the country. Got it. Andrew, let's bring you in here. You spent a lot of time digging into the dark place that is Russian politics and even darker place that is Putin's mind. Let, let's let's take take us into his mind if you if you can here. What is he thinking right now? Obviously, the rapid invasion did not work out. He did not take Kiev in three days as he had hoped. What is he doing now? Uh, is he willing to concede um, that he's gonna that his victory is going to be much less than what he initially desired? Taking Donbass, as Mike said, do you think he can afford to do that? Hello, Dimitri. Hi, hi, Mike. Yes, I, I think with the with the the slow start, so to speak, of the of this this operation, in the end, there's going to have to be a recalculation of of, of what can be achieved on the first part. So, um, I, I think we're looking at, at revised war aims. I, I do think, though, there is a there are a two parts to this. The first is that we have the military question, and the second is the political question. And the political question, in the end, if if you if there's a kind of some an insufficient military result that, that drives through to achieve uh, complete political ends. This just leads to a pause and, and the strategic question remains open for, uh, for, for all of the Russian leadership who've, who've gone in behind this. So I, I think for me, this is part of a, slightly, a, a rather bigger, bigger political question, uh, resolving the policy clash, obviously, with, with Kiev, but also there's a, there's a slightly a wider question about the Euro-Atlantic security architecture. I'll, I'll probably leave it there. There's, there's, there's quite a lot we can we can unpack, but and, and Mike probably will have something to say about that too. Well, ju- just uh, let me follow up on this because yeah. he announced this invasion as a way to denazify, quote unquote, Ukraine. Can you really afford to leave the current government in place and it being in charge of most of Ukraine, aside from the Donbas region? Is that really going to be acceptable, uh, just even internally to his credibility with the Russian people? Well, he might have to, I think. Um, if 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 there are questions about how far they can push the push the military operation further, um, I, I think there's already a question of rolling back from uh, from from a regime change. Yes. And and Mike, what what are your thoughts on the current state of casualties? Zelensky, in the address last night, was talking about over fourteen thousand dead service people, assuming um, that's just KIA's and, and not wounded. That would take us into 20, 30,000. Is that realistic or do you think it's it's actually much less? Well, um, I'm going to fall back maybe on Pentagon's talking points and claim there are 7,000 casualties, which is about half of Zelensky claims. Uh, but what I'll say is that, look, here's the truth. I don't think we know with any high level of confidence what they are. These are at best estimates, right? And they're very incomplete picture. Uh, we also know even far less about the state of Ukrainian forces and what Ukrainian casualties are. That's actually even much darker part of of, of those puzzles. So, um, you know, working out the casualties and trying to understand what, what's been the rate of attrition, what combat effectiveness is left, that's really not easy. I'm sorry to give a disappointing answer, but I, I think it's far better to be frank about uncertainty than it is to give out numbers that, that betray false confidence. But do you think, uh, numbers aside, that, 
he can still sustain this politically in terms of the notifications uh, to the next of kin that are going out right now to the Russian mothers? Oh, yeah. From that respect, I think absolutely. In fact, if anything, it's only been the last week and a half that the Russian establishment has really gotten about the business of mobilizing the public and getting public to support uh, this war. I think they can actually hide a lot of the casualties or if not hide, at least isolate the information and news about the casualties. So people are operating in a kind of fragmented information environment at home. I'm probably a bit less concerned about public reaction to that than I would be about, you know, Russian elite reaction to the catastrophe that is that is likely to become the Russian economy. But um, on that front, it's to me, it's more of an issue of combat, combat effectiveness and what it really does to the units and the fact that Russian forces really will need a serious operational pause, maybe a ceasefire of some kind if they want to reorganize and, and replace uh, some of their lost combat power, because I, I, suspe- I suspect they've had a real drop in combat effectiveness and any ability to advance in, in recent weeks. And, you know, there's a lot of excitement, Mike, uh, over the use of this Kinjal hypersonic missile for the first time uh, in the last couple of days to hit a weapons storage facility in western Ukraine. What do you make of that? Is that just what typical militaries do whenever they have a war? They want to unleash all of their new toys to justify their procurements. Is that what it is or is there something more to this? I'm sorry, I'm going to disappoint folks here. As a military analyst, I see a lot of missiles hitting a lot of things on a day-to-day basis, and I'm terribly unexcited by the use of the Kinjal. It's not even the true hypersonic weapon. It's an ALBM. And the fact and that what is that? Okay, air-launched ballistic missile, de facto. Maybe quasi-ballistic air-launched missile, but nonetheless, there's nothing especially exciting about this weapon system. And it being used against fixed infrastructure in no way changes the game from any other missile that the Russian military has used in this conflict. I think the only thing that's happened here that the Russian military is trying to now contest information environment with Ukraine, right? To push out stories there that they're using some kind of advanced or really cool weapon systems in order to change or drive the news cycle somewhat. So to me, what's interesting is not the fact they use the missile. To me, what's interesting is that they're trying to inject that into the information environment because they're starting to work a little harder to contest it, whereas they started the war by completely seeding it, assuming it would be a quote-unquote special operation that would be done within a few days. And they could hide most of what happened and they wouldn't actually have to fight for the narrative. Yeah. And Andrew, um, to that to that point, you know, one of the things that we're now starting to see, of course, is mobilization of the Russian public. There is continuous uh, now auto rallies with uh, cars waving fl- flags with the letter Z on them that has sort of become the symbol for Russia of this invasion. We obviously saw the huge uh, stadium that uh, apparently included many bust in um, workers uh, working for the government uh, that were brought in to celebrate this war. And Putin came out and gave a a pretty mundane speech in support of this invasion. Uh, What do you think of the Russian public opinion right now? The economy is going into a tailspin. There's now lots of pictures of empty shelves in the supermarket. For whatever reason, the Russians are buying up every piece of uh, sugar that they can. Of all things, sugar and uh, condoms seem to be the two things that uh, is, is missing from all Russian stores right now. How much of that is going to affect Putin's popularity and his hold on power? Well, I think two questions there already, Dmitry, his popularity and his, and his hold on power. So let's start with the first. That th- This is quite difficult to tell, unfortunately, because we do see a slight bump in, up in popularity. And I think it's worth remembering how, how the leadership has sought to rally support uh, in in the past, so we look at the the, the fairly major rallies, let's say in 2012, uh, you'll remember, and then after the elections and around the elections then, then of course there was the Krimnash um, rallies and so on to try to build build some sense of support for this. I mean, it, there's there are there are fairly serious questions of, of, of arrests and so on, but at the moment it doesn't look like the, the popular vote is turning immediately against him, no. So I, I think that's that's one question that we have to be have to be aware of for the longer term, but but doesn't look like it at the moment. The second is about his, his hold on power. And, you know, it's, it's worth saying, again, just reminding that in terms of the conversation that we've been we've been questioning Putin's hold on power since about 2005. You know, you'll 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 recall all the discussions that we've had more or less every six months about Putin's on his way out. And just the last two or three years, well, we, we had that with COVID, too. I, I'm I, I'm. 
I only say that because it's worth remembering that we've been through this. That it's the end of Putin repeatedly. And so I think we, we need to consider quite carefully the conditions under which any, any kind of threat to that might emerge. So you're, you're a skeptic on the possibility of a coup? Um, at the moment, I think we, we, need to be, we need to be quite careful about that idea. Yes, I, I think that's the, how it would come and from where. Um, you know, there's there's the, the the famous line about uh, about coups abroad. You know, we 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 foreigners are always the last to find out about them. Um, but but there are things that, that have to be borne in mind. It there might be an attempted coup that fails, uh, an attempted coup that succeeds but doesn't know where it's going. So you know, when we start talking about a coup, that's not the end question. Also, I I, I am at the moment a bit skeptical about that. Yes. I mean, ask, you... me again, ask me again in six weeks and, and then, you know, and, 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 and two and a half months. But, but at the moment, yes. What do you make of the spring cleaning, which seems to be a Russian tradition uh, going back centuries, whenever things go wrong to find the fall guy, uh, perhaps not, not just in Russia, but you've had uh, now uh, uh, confirmed at least resignation, if not arrest of the deputy chief of Rosguardia, Roman Gavrilov. You have uh, the U.S. saying that the, the, the reports of the arrest of Sergei Biseda, uh, who runs the fifth service of the FSB, responsible for the intelligence analysis on Ukraine, um, the U.S. Uh, government officials saying that is credible. What, what do you make of all that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think I'd want to I'd want to play this place this again in the in in the longer term context about what the arrest and um, and particularly about the Rosgvardia arrest might might be for. Um, I don't yet buy the the, the arrests of, of of the FSB. I'm I'm not not rejecting it, but I'd, I'd want to haggle about it, and I want to be sure what this was for before we said you know there are firings halfway halfway through an operation. Um, so I'm 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 a bit equivocal about about the the FSB arrests at the moment. Got it. Uh, but you don't think it's a sign that he's cracking down? He's unhappy with the information he was provided before the war about the uh, potential uh, easiness of this action. Well, that's I mean, that, that's that's what's going around at the moment. And, and you know, we'll 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 certainly find out a little bit more as, as, as time goes on. I'm I, I think that that for me remains kind of speculation and rumor rather than something confirmed. So I'm, I'm I'm a little bit uncertain about or a little bit unsure about pushing too hard on on FSB arrests. And and if it's them, well, what about the chain of command, the other chain of command? And and, and where does that stop exactly? So, again, it's. I know it's. I know we're dealing a little bit in, in speculation and rumours, and, and I don't want to put a put a, a, a wet sponge over over what what people are talking about. But I'm I'd, particularly with the FSB uh, the FSB arrest. I'd like to see more evidence. Got it, Mike. What do you think? I mean, this has been confirmed. The the, the deputy chief of Resguardia, Gavrilov, uh, resignation at a minimum, maybe arrest. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it looks like standard practice for that regime. Obviously, a lot of things didn't go to plan as they expected, and Putin's unlikely to blame himself. He's likely to blame all these people, and maybe they did try to tell him what he wanted to hear. Maybe they grossly overstated their capacities and what they could achieve in Ukraine. Other way, I'm not surprised at seeing uh, the sort of some internal purges. But but why Resguardia? Why not the military? I mean, that's a really good question. Resguardia is important because in terms of defending the regime, they typically handle uh, the public and mass mobilization of the public. They have been used extensively in this conflict. I think they've suffered some pretty significant casualties, actually, especially the more specialized Resguardia units, sober and the like. And there's also a lot of Kadyrov, say, which are technically under Resguardia, but loyal to Ramzan Kadyrov that are being used in a lot of the urban urban combat in this the, war. The Chechens. Yep, that's correct. And in fact, you can see him fighting in Mariupol. Uh, why Rosguardia? You know, uh, my best guess is that there have been major mistakes maybe made by them. Uh, early on, there were a lot of things that Rosguardia was doing that were very strange, to be perfectly honest. The first 48 hours, I couldn't, couldn't actually understand what they were doing. I mean, the Russian attempt execute a quick regime change operation by itself was bad. But Resguardia's part of it was frankly bizarre because they were driving by themselves to cities like Kiev and Kharkiv, unsupported, uncoordinated, like they were just going to roll into the city and start arresting people. And a lot of their troops got killed early on in some of these strange, uncoordinated attempts. So I'll be frank, I don't know specifically it's tied to their performance, to lack of coordination, 
or to something else within the system. Mm-hmm. What do you think the long-term damage to the Russian military has been in terms of all this destroyed equipment that is now numbering over a thousand pieces of armor that has been destroyed, uh, a number of planes that have been destroyed? What is the setback to them, you think, in terms of years of procurement here? I mean, it'll definitely take them some years to recover. Looking at procurement, I don't know, sort of I eyeball it you know, maybe three years worth of procurement, but it all depends on your assumptions and expectations about the future of the Russian economy, their ability to conduct um, some of the more advanced defense procurement, some of those line items and what they'll have access to. I mean, tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and things like that are not very hard to replace and trucks. And that's most of what they've lost, to be honest. You know, lots of... They've lost some planes too, right? Yeah, they've lost a couple planes for sure. But Russia's got a very large air force. And a very large uh, park of rotary wing aviation as well. So, so their their helicopter losses were significant, particularly in the attack on uh, Kirstone Airport. But nonetheless, it's it's a pretty large air force. Just to clarify that for folks. Um, so that part actually worries me the least. Looking out at the Russian military, I think the biggest issues are going to have to do with the force. I think they're going to have real challenges maintaining the contract component of the force, which is the majority of it. Uh, given the fact that they drum some conscripts into signing contracts in order to be sent to this war, given they generally didn't tell the troops that they were being sent to war and put them there under false pretenses, and uh, how they've used the troops, the poor organization, lack of support, I think they've terribly damaged the military's reputation. I can't imagine a lot of Russian uh, uh, Russian young men wanting to sign a contract to serve in this military now. So, you know, to me, I think the bigger challenge will be for the force. They'll probably have to move to uh, a larger conscript system, maybe extend conscript service down the line if they want to maintain numbers. And, of course, the bigger question is, are they going to conduct a series of reforms again? Because it's clear that, you know, this military has performed uh, in an incredibly unimpressive fashion. Uh, You know, there's no other way to put it. It's done quite badly. So what they make of it still remains to be seen. Yeah. What, what do you make of the Russian Air Force here? Because that's been probably one of the biggest puzzles is where's the Russian Air Force? Now we're starting to see a lot more aggressive bombing campaigns. We saw the first videos this weekend that the Russian MOD put out of the SU-35, the fourth plus plus generation plane that they have first used in Syria, now apparently used to shoot down several Ukrainian uh, fighter jets. Uh, are you seeing more activity from the Russian Air Force? Are they getting into the fight? And do you think that the threat that Lavrov issued um, over the weekend uh, to the convoys of weapons that are coming in from Poland and other countries, that those convo- convoys might maybe attack? Do you think that threat is real? Do you think they have the capacity with their Air Force to actually hit those convoys? Well, the Air Force is a harder piece of the puzzle just because... In open sources, you can see a lot less of what's happening with air power and how it's being used than you can other aspects of, of Russian military power. So I guess what I'll say is that, uh, yes, the Air Force is being used uh, with greater frequency. I think they're in a bit of a war of attrition with Ukrainian air defense. In areas where Ukrainian air defense has been concentrated, they've continuously struggled. Uh, they're trying to take out Ukrainian air defenses, but Russian Air Force is not good what we call seed and deed type missions, suppression or destruction of enemy air defense. Uh, In general, uh, I've seen them being used more frequently, maybe a little bit increasingly with precision guide munitions. Um, I don't want to delve into the topic too much because it's going to lead us to go down a bit of a rabbit hole. But in terms of use of Russian air power, it's been much more sparing than most people had expected. It really did tick up a few weeks ago. There was one really black day for the Russian Air Force where they tried to fly extensively and they lost a lot of aircraft to various Ukrainian air defense systems. On the whole, though, I have been seeing them fly more, and but maybe more specific areas where they're not likely to be shot down. Um, but generally, they're, they're engaging in bombing with, with uh, unguided munitions. So do you, do you think they have the capacity to hit convoys or no? Oh, sorry. I, I, I missed the latter part of your question. It's a bit late this Sunday. Uh, I'm skeptical because I, I'm not sure they have the ISR for that. However, 
in the last week and a half, we've seen much greater use of Russian drones, right, of various types with various um, uh, uh, levels of endurance. So if they start pushing drones more into Western Ukraine, they, they could certainly attempt to. They could give it a try. I'm still very skeptical, though. Yeah, they published a video of the use of the four-post drone, which is actually the Israeli-made uh, reconnaissance UAV that they apparently are now using that has quite a bit of order time, right? So they could potentially use some of these to identify threats and then target them through, uh, through air, uh, air power. Yeah, it's a little searcher, too. They got, they got a couple others, um, you know, and, and you see them using them more often and also to enable targeting of artillery. They're trying to push these videos out as well to, to basically show that they also are using a reconnaissance strike or a reconnaissance fire type complex. But uh, to what extent that really represents much of the battlefield, it's hard to tell. I'm always wary of the distortionary effect of published media like that, right? Because you don't know what percentage of the fighting you're, you're really seeing and to what extent that, it, that represents a broader use of remotely operated systems or more boutique use. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you both this question. I saw a really interesting Twitter thread a few days ago from Franz Stefan Gotti. Uh, from ISSS, and uh, he ma- made a very fascinating point that if you look at Russia's major military victories over the last few hundred years, they've been always in conjunction with allies, and particularly with allies providing significant economic support, certainly during World War II, land-lease uh, support from, from the allies uh, was instrumental, both the weapons and the food and so forth, in order for the Russians to survive the German onslaught and then push back. Uh, during the Napoleon uh, War, um, you had the same situation. And the cases where they did not have allies and they were fighting, uh, you know, highly capable militaries, like during the Crimean War, uh, where they were fighting the British and the, and the French, they, they didn't do so well. And is, is, should we read anything into that, Andrew and, and Mike, uh, in terms of their ability to actually fight these major wars under very severe economic conditions, like what they're about to experience uh, with pretty much complete isolation economically and diplomatically. Well, look, when you, when you come to, to using historical examples, you see all sorts of, of different things rocking up. So the, the Russian military in, in, the, in the so-called Crimean War, which, which wasn't at all just, of course, as you know, located to Crimea, was in the end, uh, one, not on the battlefield, but by having the economy shut off and its export economy shut off and a, a raise of a raise of domestic uh, domestic uh, unrest and, and, and protest. And oddly enough, much the same can be said also for uh, the Russo-Japanese war, number of other wars where 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 the Russian state has been has been defeated in war. Um, at, at the same time, it's well worth bearing in mind that the, the question of military victory and military defeat has has a certain uh, limited scale to it, because in those defeats that we've talked about, the Russian leadership was then able to, to sort of pick away and use statecraft and diplomacy and economic relations to, to overturn that result quite quickly. So, you know, I, I think when we when we look at Russian uh, military uh, or, or defeat and, and victory in war, we look at, at the, some of the great victories, you know, the, the fatherland victories, as you say, um, we'd think quite carefully about the allies in the Nor- in the Napoleonic Wars, no, because there's 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 Russia and, and, and Great Britain, uh, but but most of Europe is unified in in in, Uval, in, in the invasion of of, of Russia. Um, at the same time, the Second World War, you know, it does have have Great Britain and and, and the U.S. That's true, um, but when we start to think about Russia's defeats, the really main defeat has, was was World War One. That's the one the leadership keeps coming back to as the as the as the as the. As the complete defeat where you have economic collapse, government collapse and military defeat on the battlefield. So, you know, the Russian military history shows us all sorts of different things, uh, but, but it reminds us that the military is only a small part of that and that economics and diplomacy actually are the, the important aspects of, of, of the strategic question of war fighting. Mike. Yep. But, but, but I think, you know, Franz Stefan's point was that Russia has never really won a war when it was fighting alone and under very, very difficult economic conditions like what they're about to experience. So, Mike, any thoughts on that? Do you think we're, we're reading too much into these historical examples? Yeah, I don't think that that was France's real point, because I talked to him about that a little bit, too. I know him quite well. But, you know, let's put it this way. Russia appears basically more frequently than almost any other power 
I think, literally in militarized disputes in the last 200 years. And so, if, you know, case selection is going to heavily drive your conclusions. That is to say, I highly doubt that's true. And I'm sure there's lots of wars where Russia fought largely by itself where it won. Um, but if we look at big wars or great power wars, there's a couple of things that are likely true. First, most people's best victories are those they fought with allies or good coalitions. OK, and nobody likes to admit it necessarily, but that's probably the truth. Second, to me, the the more significant takeaway is that um, Russia has done historically poorly when it's taken on fights where coalition have sided against it. To me, that's the more interesting part of the Crimean example that Andrew thoughtfully brought up. Right. And when we look again in the case of today's conflict, why it's relevant is that when Russia picks a fight and when a lot of other powers side with Russia's opponents, its likelihood of winning become very low, much lower. To me, that's a more interesting takeaway. Right. I, I don't have a, a database of, of um, uh, Russian wins and losses and how many people were involved in each fight uh, up in front of me available right now to look back over the last three, four hundred years of history to answer the other question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, let, let's go back to Putin. How isolated do you think he is? I mean, obviously, he is very physically isolated. We're seeing these ridiculous pictures of him sitting 30 feet apart from anyone because so he's so afraid of COVID. But do you think uh, from an information perspective, he's getting very little information right now about what is going on um, that is filtering through to him? Do you think he's only getting the positive news? What, what's your view on that? I mean, nominally, yes, as you say, he's 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 isolated physically because of this this uh, the, the length of the tables that we often see, and that he's having to conduct his his meetings by by Zoom. I'm 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 a little uh, cautious about saying that he's not getting his briefings. Uh, first of all, about the war, whether whether the good information is passed up the chain or not is 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 a different question, and we see this in all sorts of other areas as well, where. Where where the the president has had to has to find out the information from himself. You remember there was the the, the leak up at, um, in uh, Norilsk, where where the information chain doesn't work very well and information is not passed up. So I, I can well imagine that that some some questions and some some poor information is and, and negative information is not passed up the chain. Yes, this is uh, this is part of the problem of, of of leading that kind of organization or that kind of state. I would say that. Again, we keep coming back to this. It's, it's one of the, the constant refrains of, of watching Russia whenever there's a crisis like this. We had exactly the same set of conversations in 2014 that Putin was isolated. He was out of touch. Same in 2012. Putin was isolated and out of touch. So I'm, I'm uh, and yet and yet certain things roll on and certain things continue. So I'm I, I think that we have to be be quite cautious about the idea that Putin is is, is isolated. Um, we have to be a bit cautious about the idea also that he is getting good information. I think we we often see examples where he himself calls out his his ministers or others uh, for giving him giving him poor information. Let's talk with Andrew a little bit about the succession plan. What does that look like now, whether voluntary or involuntary succession? Who do you think are the people that are most likely to replace him? Uh, given sort of the dynamics that he finds himself in, uh, poor economy, probably devastated economy going into the 24 election. Do you think he's going to run again? Do you think that uh, if he doesn't run, who, who, who might replace him? Well, I think I think we we're, we're about to start to see. Um, I mean, we're always going to be looking at that shift uh, between the parliamentary elections of last year and, and, and the presidency, presidential elections in 24. This idea of of a new generation coming through and, and testing out uh, testing out possible alternatives, I think, for 2024. I mean, it seems to me that the again we have this line that that, um, that a succession could be managed and could be managed carefully, uh, and therefore it's the passing on of a baton. I, I would still think that that's a that's a that's an idea that we would be looking at for 2024. Yes, uh, and then we're starting to look for people who are. Probably a, a little bit younger than, than than the president, you know, maybe maybe five ten years younger. Um, people who are uh, who have proven themselves capable of of even in this environment of, of Russian politics, let's say, of winning elections. So then then you start to look at those who are in the parliament who are rising, and, and you start to look at the role of someone like uh, Vyacheslav Volodin. Uh, who has has consistently been part of the electoral process, so to speak, and and, and, and organising that? So it seems to me that we're looking at a new generation of of of, of people. They're already coming through, Dmitry. You know, we see this in the, in the military. We see this in all sorts of other 
other sectors do. Many of the ministers are are, are comparatively young in their in their late fifties or down to their down to their mid thirties. So it seems to me it's probably it's time for this this new generation to start taking up quite senior positions now, um, and we might well find that there is a an attempt to pass the baton on to one of them. So Volodin, of course, is the chairman of the state Duma. He's uh, yeah. I think eight years old. Um, but Shoigu is not that much older, and he's a minister of defense. He's the ultimate survivor in Russian uh, post-communist uh, yeah. politics, right? He's been in government continuously since 1991 under both Yeltsin yeah. and numerous prime ministers. Do you think that this war damages him, um, or do you think that he still has a significant power base in Russia? He used to be extremely popular when he was a minister yeah. of the uh, emergency yeah. situations, Basically, the Russian fixer-upper, whenever there was a crisis or a national emergency, he would always be the ones fixing it. So what, what does his yeah. popularity look like now? He was the only one who, for, for years, the only one really who of the ministers who featured, who were able to get double figures support. It was quite, and, and we, we remember, as you, as you say, uh, Dmitry, he's been at the top level of Russian politics since since the early 90s, federal politics since the early 90s. He was involved in, in first in unity, and then he was leading uh, um, so, so there's there's a lot of politics there that, in terms of a, of a basis. But it, it seems to me that that actually for for several years now he's been talking about trying to retire, and and I wonder if that's if that's not an indication he's wanted to he's talked about going to Siberia and and, and developing Siberia. I wonder if if actually the the that the point is less so um, to to look at. Um, uh, to look at someone of the same the same age group, and more to look at, at someone who that that organisation could be uh, could be actually supportive to provide provide more dynamic support for, for someone else. So I'm I'm not so sure about about uh, Sergei Shoigu being 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 set up for the presidency. No, well, he definitely should be careful what he wishes for because going to to Siberia can make, mean something entirely <laughs> different than what he is expecting. Um, let me ask you about I asked this to Mike last week and, and Rob as well, I want to get your view. There's a lot of concern right now in the West about the nuclear threats that um, uh, Putin is uh, continuously bringing up. Uh, he's raised the alert of the nuclear forces. Uh, what is the likelihood that he's going to actually use a tactical nuclear weapon either in Ukraine itself or he's going to get into a confrontation with NATO that uh, will lead to a nuclear exchange, in your view, Andrew? Well, I would think this is probably, I mean, Mike, Mike's the one who's done extensive work on, on escalation. So I, I think no, I'm, I'm tempted to pass the ball straight to Mike. But I, I would say that the, the nature of the weapons that, that are likely to be used align with the, with the delineation and military strategy of how, how a war is to be fought. And, and if we if we accept that this is let's call it a special military operation that's that's fine let's put that to one side if we look at uh, how military strategy defines the what the, the scope of wars what we look at is is at, at the top end and the bottom end so sorry bottom end you'd have armed conflict and right at the top you'd have you'd have uh, nuclear war but in between that you have three three phases three levels of war one is a local war, which is a war fought with general forces between two states. And then you start to move to regional and large-scale war. And it's really in the large-scale war where you start to see more, more strategic weaponry brought in. Um, but then again, when you start to look at uh, Russian escalation ladders, you, the, the nuclear weapons tend to come in, come in quite high in the ladder. So um, I, I think unless there is a serious escalation of the war to take this to, to a large-scale war... Uh, we're, we're not really looking at, at, at nuclear weapons um, just out of frustration with how this war is being fought or some such. This is this is a, a category change in our thinking. Yeah, that, that is my view on this as well. I, I just don't know how he's able to justify it, even internally to the Russian public, that he's liberating Ukraine from the Nazis and then he's going to launch, yeah. launch a nuclear weapon on the Ukrainian people and cause massive amounts of casualties. Uh, I mean, even he would not be able to sell it as a defensive move on uh it's a tough sell isn't it yeah liberating yeah. ukrainians <clears throat> um what, what about the chemical or biological do you think that he may use those and blame it on ukrainians a lot of concern right now in the west about that prospect 
well, again, I, I'd say that this, this, uh, the, the way that things are being discussed at the moment, I, mean, two, I suppose two options come out of this. First, if it remains the kind of war that they're fighting, uh, a, a conventional uh, a conventional ground forces war, then, then still we're not, we're not looking at that kind of weapon of mass destruction being used. Um, I suppose... I suppose we come to the question of looking at whether the, the, the Russian leadership is able to, how can I put this, um, how can I put this, provide evidence that there is the, the, this, this, this biological, chemical biological program within, within Ukraine. Um, uh, it, it seems to me unlikely to be very, very convincing for most, certainly in, in the UK and, uh, and the US. Um, so I, I, I would still stay with the, with the definition of, of, of conventional war. Um, Mike may have something else to say about that, but conventional war is uh, with general forces looks to me um, at the moment that that kind of war that he's fighting. Well, of course, the, the conventional war that he's fight, fighting is full of war crimes, and the use of Chechens right now in Mariupol is quite uh, troublesome because these people are quite brutal oftentimes and uh, engage in a variety of uh, uh, extreme measures uh, to torture prisoners and, and, and to commit. Um, all kinds of atrocities. Mike, what are you seeing from the Chechen contingent of these forces? Uh, they seem to be uh, loyal to Kadyrov. Uh, Kadyrov seems to be pretty involved in this operation. How much of, is he driving this? How much of, these, uh, of the operation is sort of independently being conducted by these Chechens? I, mean, I don't think he's personally driving it that much, but he is demonstrating his loyalty to Putin by sending a large number of his forces there. It feels like there's quite a few Chechens in this conflict, both in the north, in that convoy that was trying to make its way down to Kiev, and more importantly, in the south as well, fighting for Mariupol. A um, couple comments on them first. I obviously don't know how many of them are in this conflict. They have a outsized presence because they take so many bloody videos of themselves. It looks like they're the only Russians actually taping themselves in this war, and they're just constantly videotaping promos of themselves in this fight. I'm not even sure they have that much time to fight. I'm, I'm being facetious, of course. But uh, the, the number is probably substantial. Uh, they tend to, at least they appear to have high morale, and they generally tend to have better kit. I suspect Kadira personally spends a lot more money. They definitely look better equipped than the average Russian infantryman uh, in terms of what they were sent with. I mean, other than that, I can't add much more. Um, judging by some of the videos they make, you won't be surprised when I tell you they're clearly not very familiar with the Geneva uh, conventions and, and laws of armed conflict. Or they don't bother to be, um, uh, <laughs> to be acquainted with them. Uh, Andrew, why, why is good? Yeah, they... I was going to say, yeah, th th those folks don't strike me as the kind that uh, spend their evenings reading up on international law. Yeah, so, some of the videos are coming out of prisoners of war, Ukrainian prisoners of war that Chechens have, um, captured are, are not pleasant to watch. Uh, Andrew, uh, why is Kadyrov so in on this conflict? Why does it matter to him? That's a very good question, one that definitely deserves an answer. Um, I think that, that all sorts of uh, different capabilities are being used in the conflict, and of course you'd want to try and you'd want to try and bring in uh, as much support across the board, across the board as possible. So you've got a variety of different capabilities within within the conflict. So so military, but also Rosguardia, and then and then you have also this sense of uh, of bringing Chechens in, which is which is a you know it's a it's a propaganda threat. I think Mike is probably. Uh, more focused on on the use of of the particular kinds of troops, but it's it's a propaganda question, it seems to me. Do, do you think that this is a way for Kadyrov to extract additional concessions from Putin potentially, if he ends up if Putin ends up owning to Kadyrov or potentially take Mariupol and perhaps even other places around Ukraine? Such as, I mean, what other concessions would he would he be would he be looking for within the? Uh, within that, I mean, he seems to have he seems to have quite a serious quite a serious bunch of concessions already within the Russian political landscape. So, I mean, what kind of concessions would be looking for? It's a good point. It's a good point. He may have everything he needs. Uh, Mike, uh, what, what should we be looking to in the coming weeks? Uh, you, you mentioned that there might be an operational pause on the last uh, show that uh, the Russians are sort of at the end of their logistics and exhaustion. Uh, how, how long do you think they would need to resupply and reorganize uh, for continued fights? Is this something that's going to take a week or are we looking potentially at a longer 
sort of stalemate. And what do you make of the fact that we appear to be finding trenches being dug up by Russian forces? Is this about to turn into World War One style trench warfare? I don't think it's about to turn to World War One trench warfare, but I do think we're going to start to see consolidation of fronts and, and definitely an operational pause. Um, I think you're already seeing it on most of the fronts in terms of how the fighting has been going. I think that it depends on how many additional units the Russian military pushes uh, to the front. They clearly are moving units up from other parts of Russia, right? I think I want folks to be aware that, yes, Russian military has a lot more forces that it can generate. It's a big lift for them, but they can do it. There's a lot more Russian military power still available to some extent. There are also reservists in the Russian military that they could call up, which obviously are going to be of much lower quality. I don't think overall they are prepared or they were thinking about a long war, but they have choices that they can make. And if they want to, they can go down the route of more general national mobilization. They have a lot of manpower and material. I think what we should look for in the coming week is first, what happens in the Donbass? Does the Russian attempt to encircle Ukrainian forces? there and then second whether or not you know this operational pause translates into a ceasefire and then that ceasefire eventually leads us to some settlement or we enter a different chapter in this war where it's likely to become more of a war of attrition in which case i I think it's going to get even uglier than it has been i think we're going to have even more bombardment of civilian population centers and they are just less sanguine in general about the trajectory of the war, if that's what it becomes. And that, you know, it's very hard to see anything in conflict. There are a few things as contingent and sort of indeterminate as, as war. Uh, and and a, lot, a lot is just contingent there. Mm-hmm. And what do you make? There are videos coming out tonight out of Belarus, um, the area near Brest, which is close to the Polish border and Western Ukrainian border, that there seems to be an aggregation of Belarusian forces there. They have... Uh, painted uh, red square on some of their vehicles. Uh, obviously, we saw painting up Zs and Vs on Russian vehicles prior to the invasion uh, that started on February 24th. Do you think that might be an indication that Belarus is going to get into this fight? Uh, Lukashenko made statements last week that he has no interest in going into Ukraine and that uh, Russia doesn't need Belarus in Ukraine. But uh, what, what do you make of these developments? It's a good question. I've seen that too. Honestly, I don't know. I'm skeptical Belarus is going to intervene. I don't think they're going to make a tremendous difference, that's for sure. If the Russian military can't do it, I can't expect the Belarusian military is going to make a tremendous impact. Uh, That said, they could be used, to be honest, they could be used as a pinning force to maybe pin some amount of Ukrainian forces in that western part of the country more as a distraction. That's that's an alternative interpretation. Could they use them to cut off resupply routes from Poland? Potentially, I mean, but you don't know what what Ukrainian defense is capable of in that part of the country either, right? They could actually get bogged down quite easily themselves. Mm -hmm. And it it all depends um, on what Lukashenko says. Well, I mean, how much heat can you pay to to what Lukashenko says either way? Right. What do you both think uh, for the prospects of negotiated outcome. Zelensky is kind of making contradictory statements on that in his address to his people every night. He keeps talking about negotiations being the only way out. Um, I don't think he believes himself that he can actually defeat the Russian forces. Uh, and he's even said that wars always end in negotiated outcome. But then again, he keeps reiterating that uh, Ukrainian sovereignty, Ukrainian territorial integrity is not negotiable. It's hard to see how any negotiation succeeds where there's not at least a compromise on Crimea and potentially parts of the Donbass. What what do you guys think uh, are the prospects for a negotiated outcome in the very near future? Andrew, we'll start with you. Well, negotiated outcome, when we say the near future, within a month. Within within weeks, yeah. Within a week or within a month? Two weeks, let's say. Okay, two weeks. Well, I, I think you know, Mike's, Mike's spoken a bit about the, the, the structure of, of the situation, how difficult also it is to judge that. But I, I think we could, we could easily come to a, a situation where 
a negotiated outcome is uh, is achieved a ceasefire, whether that, whether that ends up being a ceasefire that takes us through to the summer or whether that's a ceasefire that takes us through to a, um, a, a more substantive pause over 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 a month over a few months or a couple of years is, is difficult to tell because it doesn't resolve the policy clashes between uh, between Moscow and Kiev. So you know when we talk about a ceasefire, all we're doing is putting a putting a plaster over this fairly major dispute. Um, so I, unfortunately, when we talk about this, a military stalemate or even even military victory or military defeat, we're, we're talking really about the bigger term pro- problem of of a return to 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 try to fight this out in a, at a different period later. So yes, po- very possibly we find some negotiated uh, negotiated pause, but that's that's really what what we're looking at is a pause. Do you agree with that, Mike? Is it just going to be a pause, or do you think there could actually be a, a real conflict resolution here? It depends. I mean, yeah, I agree with Andrew, but you know, you're likely to get a ceasefire, some agreement uh, when both sides feel relatively exhausted, right? You have to have both sides have expectations of the future trajectory of the conflict where they believe that militarily they're unlikely to get made further gains and that their position will deteriorate. Unfortunately, neither side usually has necessarily an objective understanding of the battlefield, right? So we're highly dependent on Vladimir Putin actually having an accurate perception of what's going on with Russian forces and their prospects for any further success, and the same thing being true of Zelensky. So all things being equal, right, as an analyst, I could guess that in the next couple of weeks, there's likely to be this culminating point, probably for both sides. Um, And you know, or, or, or at the very least for the Russian side. And that could lead to a ceasefire, at least it could motivate both sides to pursue a ceasefire. But it all depends on whether or not they could agree, right? If there's a sufficient meeting ground between Russian demands and, you know, what Zelensky is likely to be able or willing to concede. Of course, if there's just a ceasefire a pause, it's unlikely the Russians would withdraw from the significant gains they've made in the Donbass and uh, south in the Kherson area and in the north. Um, so that could potentially be a, a very problematic ceasefire for Zelensky, given that part of this country will, a bigger part of this country will remain occupied by Russia. <clears throat> well, on that note, um, we're going to end it there. Thank you so much for coming to this Twitter space. I hope you found this discussion informational and fascinating. And thank you so much, Mike, again, for coming back, and Andrew, for your insights into the Russian political system. Please follow them both. Uh, Andrew has a terrific book on the Russian political system. I encourage you to all to read it. And, of course, uh, follow Mike on Twitter and elsewhere. He is everywhere these days. Uh, But thank you, gentlemen, for sharing your insights with us tonight. And hope to see you guys soon. Take care. Thanks for having me on the program. Thank you.